Well, good morning. Uh, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, is where we will pick up this morning. I'll invite you to open there with me. We, we opened the door last week in our time together to this intense confrontation that we're about to read here in just a few minutes. This is a confrontation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman that he has been speaking with. We got as far as verse 18 last week, and we saw in those last uh, set of verses the precision of his initial strike as he shifts the conversation from uh, one of talking together to one of confronting in a personal way. We saw the precision of it because we saw how impactful it was to her. Her reaction makes really clear to us how impactful this was. But this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to spend our time seeing the entire confrontation as a whole. The confrontation between them lasts from verse 16 to verse 26. Their interactions don't end there. His interactions with her don't stop at verse 26. He's going to spend two days with her and with her people. But at verse 26, the confrontation between them is over. She's done at that point, evading this man. And all she wants to do is to bring others to experience him too. And I think that's a good way to put it, to experience him. Not just to talk with him, not just to ask him questions. Because that's not all that she has been doing in this interaction. Now, much more is happening here in what we'll see this morning than simply a dialogue between them. She is experiencing knowledge and authority that she has never experienced before. She's experiencing love and grace that she's never experienced before. And really, it's incredible to know uh, how close the passion of hers is uh, in what's about to come as we go through our text this morning. Because all she's going to do this morning, as we'll see, is to try to evade him. We're going to see her make three different attempts to evade this man this morning. It's all we'll talk about. It's all we'll see in verses 16 to 26. Her repeated attempts to evade him. And then in verse 29, three verses after that, she's going to run to the townspeople that she's literally sweating on the, in the heat of this day just to keep away from, right? She came to the well at the heat of the day so that she wouldn't have to see these people. She's going to run to them and say, come see a man. <laughs> it's going to happen three verses from where we will end this morning. I'll be reading as we begin Verses 16 to 26 from John chapter 4. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Our text continues in this way. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our forefathers, excuse me, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. 
But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that when Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. There are three evasion tactics that the Samaritan woman tries on this strange, exhausted Jew that started talking to her when she came to draw water from the well. She's going to try hiding, distancing, and stalling. She's going to try to hide truth from him. It won't work. She's going to try to create distance from him. Distance between him and her personal situation in person, and it won't work. And she's going to try to stall the personal confrontation, and it won't work. That's what we'll see this morning. I think that it's helpful in terms of the structure of this to see these verses in a particular way. And I would even ask you to look down at your Bibles. Try to see what we're going to go through like this. You see verse 16, Jesus initially says to her, go call your husband and come here. Try to see that request of hers as sort of the kickoff of what's going to come after it. That's where he demands that this is a personal encounter. When he speaks into her personal situation, inviting her to go and get her husband. That's the kickoff. You see verse 16 that way and then See what follows as the Samaritan woman's attempts to evade and Jesus overcoming those attempts. Right? So if we're looking at it that way, then in terms of the interactions, the first of them is going to be her reply, I have no husband. That's her first attempt, it's replied to. She'll reply again, it's replied to. She'll try a third time, it's replied to. So in that case, then her first attempt that we see, the attempt to hide, comes in verse 17 where she simply replies, I have no husband. We spoke about this a bit last week. Uh, her, her immediate effort here to conceal the truth about herself points to the shame and guilt that she is living with. And we need to remember as well, she's going to say in verse 29 here, when she goes into the city, she's going to say that this man, quote, told me all that I ever did. That's how impactful it is for Jesus to raise the situation of her morality, of her relationships. To her, what he's just done is he's just spoken into everything she ever did. That's how significant it is to her in terms of her own self-identity. What she is most ashamed of, the places of greatest ruin in her life. In other words, what she would most want to stay hidden, he knows already. 
And this is true of the man who was just making that strange offer to her of living water that will forever satisfy. He knew this of her when he offered her this uh, mysterious but incredible gift. Why would he offer such a thing? And why would he offer it to one such as me? And you know, it's just always, I think, a great question for us to articulate, isn't it? Why would he offer such a thing to one like me? The question makes sense of her desire to hide from him. But let me ask you, if that's, if that's the struggle, what would it take then for her to shout excitedly the words of verse 29? Just a few verses. Why would the fact that there's a man who could tell me everything I ever did, why would that ever become something to be excited about? Well, it must be, by that point, that she has come to believe that she doesn't need to hide from him after all. It must be that he has turned out to be gentle and gracious and full of mercy. But by the end of verse 18 here, all she's learned so far is this. I can't hide from him. Now, the second thing this morning then in verses 19 and 20, when that attempt fails or attempt to hide from him fails, she's going to try to distance from him. And especially to distance from the direction this conversation suddenly took. As it suddenly became a, a completely personal conversation. She's going to try to push from that nearness by raising a corporate topic instead of a personal topic. By raising a topic of national worship. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say... That's a plural you. You Jews say that in Jerusalem is, where, is the place where people ought to worship. Now, in some ways, do you find that to be a strange move for her in this conversation? A strange reaction? Commentators are divided as they try to look into her heart, which is, which is impossible. But some do, and there's division as to whether they see this as a conscious deflection on her part or as a genuine question. I don't think we, we should waste any time trying to speculate about her heart motive. We have no way to know that. But to me, either way that she's going there, she's really making the same move in the conversation. It's a move away from the personal nature of verse 18 and instead bringing the conversation into a corporate or a national level. You see how she's just managed to do that? And she does it by bringing up a question that is a very big deal. This matter is hugely significant for them. Uh, D.A. Carson gives a very helpful background here about their temple dispute that she's talking about. He points out that the initial command in the Old Testament to build a place of worship for God and for his name came in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5. And if you remember from last week, the Samaritans only viewed the Pentateuch Matthew, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as authoritative scripture. So they viewed this command as authoritative and as, as a command from God. Listen to what Carson says. This is a bit long, but in one paragraph, he gives us an incredible amount of understanding 
about what's going on here. He says this, Both Jews and Samaritans recognized that God had commanded their forefathers to seek the place the Lord your God would choose from among all the tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. Deuteronomy 12.5. But they drew conflicting conclusions from this authorization. The Jews, because they recognized the rest of the Hebrew canon and not just the Pentateuch, concluded Jerusalem was the place. There David determined to build a temple to God, and God solemnly authorized his son Solomon to do so. There, sacrifice was divinely sanctioned, the temple site even retaining its significance when Zerubbabel rebuilt it after it was destroyed. For their part, the Samaritans recognized none of this. Moreover, their own textual tradition of Deuteronomy 12.5 prompted them to look into the Pentateuch itself to discover the place. And they noted that Shechem, overlooked by Mount Gerizim, that's the mountain she's talking about, was the first place Abraham built an altar once he entered the Promised Land. It was on Mount Gerizim that the blessings were to be shouted to the covenant community once they had entered the Promised Land. In the Samaritan Bible, the Ten Commandments are followed by words very similar to those in Deuteronomy 27, effectively tying the Decalogue itself to Mount Gerizim. Granted these theological understandings, it's small wonder that the Samaritans built their temple there and insisted that Mount Gerizim was the highest mountain in the world, even though Mount Ebal, just across the valley, was demonstrably higher. Even after their temple was destroyed by John Hyrcanus, the Samaritans continued to perform their sacrifices and other rites on this mountain. So I think that helps us to see the depth of this dispute. There's a lot that's on the line when it comes to this controversy. But you can also see there how both sides view this really as a matter of faithfulness to God. So she raises this question. It touches on a question of worship, but it's also a question of scriptural authority. These are not bad questions, are they? They're good questions. This is important. However, underlying this issue and underlying her question here is the assumption that God finds worship acceptable based on where that worship is offered, based on location. And there's a part of that that's true. It's what can make this tricky. We see three responses in his reply to her. And I'm going to take these out of order, so we're not going to go in order here directly. Uh, Three things he says in reply to her question about this temple location controversy. Where is it? prophet that I perceive to be? Where is it uh, that we ought to worship? What's the solution here between the Jews and the Samaritans? One answer he gives to her, one response is that the Jews had it right. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So the question, who is right, the Samaritans or the Jews, in their temple location, it's not a question that's answered with none of the above. That's false. The Jews have that right. They are operating based on received revelation. They're the legitimate heirs of God's covenant promises and of his revelation. And as Jesus puts it, salvation is from the Jews because the Messiah comes from the royal line of the Jewish King David. 
That's exactly what Paul goes on and on about in Romans chapter 9 as well, especially in verses 4 and 5. The legitimate advantages and rightness in that historical tradition. So that's one way he responds to her here. The Jews had it right. But there's a second and a third response that he gives to her here. And these sort of build on each other. Jews had it right, but secondly, going to Jerusalem to worship never guaranteed that the worship was acceptable. Jesus is going to speak of a coming reality in verse 21. He'll say, the hour is coming when... But notice that in verse 24, he's speaking of an eternal reality because he's talking about the very nature of God himself. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You see that? That's a necessity that that exists because of the very nature of God. And so what that means then in their context is that it was possible to go to Jerusalem the right place. It was possible to go to Jerusalem to worship and to worship unacceptably. We haven't talked yet about spirit and truth here, but whatever that's going to mean, if you went to Jerusalem and you didn't worship in spirit and truth, you weren't worshiping. That kind of worship is necessary in order to worship this God. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is something that's abundantly clear in the Old Testament itself. The prophets make this uh, sort of point over and over again. As God is condemning his people and their their idolatry through the prophets. One example of that is Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 to 15. It says this, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. By the way, who told them to offer that blood? Well, God did, right? Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath are the calling of, and the calling of convocations. Listen to what he says. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Very similar language is given in many other places. Jeremiah 6, Amos chapter 5. The, prom- the prophets made this very clear. So then what is it that produces acceptable worship? Jesus says true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. You can tell, I I imagine, just how fundamental that is to what Jesus is saying here in this context. These are two words with their own meanings, but they're two words that are given here in a way that they're creating one idea. This is a singular idea that he's setting out before us, even in the way grammatically that he's presented it. And the ESV, I think, is right to leave the word spirit uncapitalized. Do you see in your Bible that it's a lowercase s there? Every English Bible I could find does that. It leaves it uncapitalized, except for the NIV. The NIV editors judge that he's talking about the Holy Spirit there, and so they put a capital S. And that's, that's a possibility. I don't think that that's what he's doing, though, given the context here. I think he's describing... But what he's speaking about there is the human spirit. He's describing 
if you will, that true worship is not an external thing. We are worshiping, when we offer true worship, we're worshiping with all of us, not just with the outside of us. And we're worshiping in accordance with truth. We're worshiping God as he truly is and as he has instructed us to worship. Just think of the result of either one of those without the other. Worshiping God in our spirit, worshiping uh, with the inner man, with, with, with uh, all of the zeal and affections uh, that I have with my mind, with my will, but somehow doing that with no truth. What is that kind of worship? That's a fundamentally empty worship, isn't it? Worse than that, that would, that's probably not a bad definition of what idolatry is. There's a great deal of zeal and affection uh, offered up in worship to pagan idols and false gods. That's out of step with the truth. What about worship? You could say it this way. This breaks down the analogy. But you could say worship in truth, worship exactly as commanded externally, but with no adoration, no heartfelt, genuine love as I worship. Now, that would already be worshiping falsely because we're commanded in this. But if you can imagine that scenario, worship in truth without worship in spirit, what would that be? It would be fundamentally empty, meaningless worship. Leon Morris writes on this. He says, it is the human spirit that is in mind. One must worship not simply outwardly by being in the right place and taking up the right attitude, but in one's spirit. The combination spirit and truth points to the need for complete sincerity and complete reality in our approach to God. And I like that depiction that he gives of the two. Complete sincerity and complete reality. And you notice maybe in what he said about true worship not being about the right place. In understanding it that way, you can see why Jesus would say that in this context, his point in this text. It's not that there had never been true worshipers before this hour that he says is coming. That's not the distinction that he's making. Of course, there had been true worshipers before this hour that's coming. The point is that before, there had been a relevant element of location in God's requirement for worship. The temple in Jerusalem had real significance as God called his people to worship him. But it's as if Jesus is saying here, recent developments are such that the hour is coming and now is when true worship will not involve those externals any longer. It will be about spirit and truth worship. The hour is coming when Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. And it, that, that fascinates me because that's another plural you. But it, it's a plural that doesn't just speak to her people, the Samaritans, who don't worship in Jerusalem. He responds to her in a way, where should we worship? Where's the right place to worship? And he responds in a way that takes Jew and Samaritan together and lumps them and says the hour is coming when none of y'all will worship in either place. No true worship will be offered in this location-specific way. Now, we should not move on, though, from this 
understanding about spirit and truth without making some application points. And I want to give you one thing that it doesn't mean for us today and one thing that it does. Uh, this doesn't mean, this idea that spirit and truth worship is not location dependent, that doesn't mean that going to church on Sunday is optional. Have you heard people reason like that, even from these same sorts of texts? It doesn't mean that at all. Uh, what it does mean for us in that sense is that it doesn't matter where we gather to worship. We could meet here. We could meet outside. We've done that before. We could meet in another building. It's not location dependent in that way. It doesn't matter where we gather, but it matters very much that we gather as God's people. True worship involves the gathering of God's people. Certainly we do worship privately as well, don't we? We must worship privately. In fact, our whole lives are to be lives of worship to God. But the Bible makes clear that worship must be done corporately. We just in the last year did a study on the spiritual gifts, didn't we? When God saves a person and gives them the Holy Spirit and pours out through the Holy Spirit gifts to that person, that person becomes a steward of those things. We are stewards of spiritual gifts that he has given us, not for ourselves, but for use within local bodies of believers. And if we're stewards, you know that means that we're accountable for how we would use those gifts or not, for whether we zealously serve others with those gifts. We're commanded in Hebrews chapter 10 to use those gifts to stir up one another to love and good deeds. It's a command. It's a command. And the very next verse after that proceeds to command us not to forsake the assembling together for worship. Now, what is it called? To disobey a clear command of God. What is that called? That's called sin. It's called disobedience. To not gather with the Lord's people regularly for worship is sin. Now, are there circumstantial exceptions to that? Are there times and places and occasions where we are not able to do that? Of course there are. But friends, that's just what those are. They're exceptions, aren't they? And in light of the commands of Scripture, there are exceptions that should be considered carefully and with prayer. And I would say in dialogue with the shepherds that God is holding accountable for your spiritual health. We are to gather together. That should be a given for us. That's sort of a negative application. That's what uh, spirit and truth worship doesn't mean. But I think positively as well, what he has told us about spirit and truth worship also helps us to understand priorities in worship, right? Priorities. A particular application comes, I think, in the realm of musical worship. Genu genuine inner man worship only ever goes hand in hand with truth. So there are questions that could come from that. Well, what should we pursue then? to stir our affections for God. It's good and it's right that our affections would be stirred for God. 
Our affections are a prime part of us, and we have responsibility with what we do with them. What should we pursue to stir our affections for God? The answer is truth. There's a lot of alternatives to that, aren't there? We don't pursue in an effort to stir our affections. We don't pursue empty emotionalism. It's very easy to do. We must not do that. We don't pursue contrived manipulation of our emotions. We don't pursue this through things that that pagan religions pursue, through things like mindless repetition, speaking something, saying a line over and over and over and over again until I've worked myself up emotionally. No, it's not the goal. The goal is not that my heart would lift itself up, but that it would be lifted up by truth, by the truth of who this God is that I worship. And in accord with the truth as to how he has told me to worship him. Verse 23 ends by saying, the father is seeking such people to worship him. This is what God desires. He seeks worshipers who love and reverence him. And that means worshipers who know him and who worship as a result of that knowledge. Another way of saying all of that is he wants true worshipers. So he tells her here, in this reply, again, we're still looking just at the distancing uh, effort on her part with this temple controversy. His reply is, the Jews had it right, going to Jerusalem, though never guaranteed acceptable worship. Thirdly, in this reply to her here, in verse 21, he tells her that the very need itself for a temple is going away. I mean, this is unbelievable. What would a Jew think hearing him say this to her? That the hour is coming when worship will not happen in Jerusalem. What? Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jerusalem's temple is the right one. But soon that temple will be done as a tool and instrument of true worship of God. I mean, just think of how that changes the narrative that she has been trying to hide behind. The very distinction itself, where there may be a right and a wrong, he says, the hour is coming very soon when it won't even exist any longer. And notice how what that does is it again removes an obstacle between this God they're speaking of and her. It becomes again a question of personal confrontation. He seeks spirit and truth Worship. The side you're on on this debate will soon be irrelevant. Who are you in relation to this God? Now, when is this going to happen? When is it that neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father? When will the temple officially be an outmoded means of worship? He says it will happen when the hour comes. The hour is spoken of lots of times in this gospel. And every time it's mentioned in an unqualified way, not a particular hour, John is always referring either to Jesus' death or to the situation surrounding his death. He says in verse 23, the hour is coming and now is. And that can be confusing because Jesus isn't, he hasn't died yet. So how is the hour, speaking of his death, if he says the hour is coming and now is? Well, the truth of it is the hour is coming. 
at this moment as she's speaking to her. It now is in the sense that as Jesus Christ stands before her in the flesh, the fact of it means that it's as good as done. It's as good as done. We, we saw it when we studied Galatians. I look back at this. I don't know why. It was Mother's Day last year that we talked about the word proleptic. Do you remember that? Uh, uh, that's what's happening here. He's speaking about his death as an already existing reality because of its certainty even now. But the hour refers in particular to his death. His death marks this transition he's telling her about. Why? What is it about his death that means that the temple in Jerusalem will no longer be an instrument of God for true worship? It's for the same reason that the temple curtain tears in two the moment Jesus breathes his last breath. I wonder if you were picturing that even as we were talking about this. The death of Jesus Christ ended the need for a temple because it completed the purpose for which the temple existed in the first place. God commanded them to build a place for him in those ways that we've seen. The temple was created to create a holy place among sinful humanity. And not just to create a place where that holiness could dwell in the midst of his people, but where it could dwell safely. It had to be, they had to be protected from that holiness, didn't they? Take an Old Testament saint, genuine believer, spirit and truth worship. Take that saint and shove him into the Holy of Holies. What happens? Well, he falls dead is what happens. God kills him. That's what, the, in part, what the curtain existed to protect against. And what is it going to take to remove that division? Think of it. We're not talking even about a division between a holy God and the wicked, sinful world. We're talking there about a division between God and his own people. What is it going to take to remove that division? And what we find is what it takes is the sacrifice of the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. Such is the effect of that sacrifice. When he sheds his blood, something happens such that there is no longer a need for God's people to be protected against his holiness in their midst. And there goes the curtain. So to recap here so far, after Jesus asked her to go get her husband, she starts these attempts, whoa, to distance herself. She tries to hide from him. She tries to distance from him by pushing things to the corporate level. And he's swept that out of the way now. And again, he's made clear that in what he's offering to her, this is going to be a personal confrontation, or it's not going to be at all. It cannot be avoided. There's one last thing that she tries here, right at the end. She tries to stall this personal confrontation. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes... He will tell us all things. She responds that Jesus is speaking about realities that are not going to be just totally clear until the Messiah comes. You're making bold claims, sir, about things we can't really be settled on or sure about until 
Messiah comes. Let's just wait. Let's wait for him. She says Messiah here, probably in deference to him as a Jewish prophet. The Samaritans had a messianic concept, but it was not at all the same as the Jews. And they didn't call him Messiah. They called him Taheb. Taheb means something like the restorer. And this person that they're waiting for, the Samaritans are waiting for, is the fulfillment of the promise in Deuteronomy, of course, 18.18. God promises there to send a prophet who will come and will speak the very words of God. And they're waiting for this one. But they're waiting in a different way than the Jews are. The Jews are waiting for a Messiah to come and rescue them. The Samaritans aren't. They're waiting for a prophet to come and teach them fully. So one writer explains, the Samaritans pictured the Taheb as one who would reveal the truth when he came, in line with his role as the ultimate prophet. Makes a lot of sense of, of how she words this too, doesn't it? And this woman, in one final attempt, tries to hold on to the protection that he has just blown up about these controversies and distinctions. She tries it with those two great words that any procrastinator in here, worth his or her salt, knows very well. The words, one day, one day, we're going to get to that. And it's interesting because to this, you notice Jesus really needs to offer no corrective. Because in a way, she has now come to some truth. There is one promised to come and reveal all things. Explain all things, the very things even that Jesus is explaining. And he is doing that here because he is that. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I can't imagine what it was to hear that. But isn't it encouraging to us today? There is nothing left for us to know in this life that we need to know that has not been revealed and explained to us in the person and teaching of Jesus Christ. There's nothing left. The implications of that are huge for us. And I'm thinking especially in terms of the way that we are set free then to move forward in our life. When we have been found by Christ, when we've found that there's no way to hide from him, and better yet, that there's no need to hide from him, and we've come to him into all life, into all truth, we are set free in the way we move forward in life. Would you turn over, this is, uh, as we're beginning to close here, I'd like you to look at this with me in 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 to 8. Peter writes this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Good verse 5. For this very reason, 
Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It feels sometimes today like we're just in turmoil at every turn. There are so many questions, so much confusion. We think we're standing on solid ground, and it turns out there's shifting tectonic plates under our feet. I wonder if you're like me. I wonder if you find that it's a real struggle sometimes not to let those things come to dominate your thinking. If it dominates our thinking, it's dominating our time. It's dominating our choices, our energy. I was thinking about that this week and tried to make a list of what takes a back seat by necessity if I let that happen. Thoughts, (laughs) replacement thoughts, alternative thoughts, Thoughts to stoke the fires of my affection for Christ. How about that? Even in the realm of things like personal uh, devotion and, uh, and, and spiritual discipline. Uh, how about a sense of calm because of the promised nearness of my Savior? It's hard for that sense of calm to stay if my thoughts have become dominated by these questions and confusions and uncertainties. How about time spent planning how to bless my wife and my children? Space in my head to remember what's going on in the lives of my neighbors and my friends. Space in my affections to care about the needs of those in my sphere. Space in my willpower, which is being diverted as a result of those thoughts, to go out and meet those needs that God has revealed within my sphere, where I can act, I can change, I can bless. Our text this morning is not 2 Peter 1, but my goodness, the application of this here, hear the progression in this text. We are granted all of that in those early verses, verse 3, because Christ has revealed himself to us. He has drawn near. He has taught us. By his promises, we have escaped from the world's corruption, verse 4. And because of that, verse 5, make every effort to, he says. Just look at the list that comes from that. My friends, that is where our mental effort ought to be going. That's where our time commitments ought to be going. That's where our money ought to be going. That's where our priorities are to be. We are set free. It's the psalmist who says, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing them. We don't have to flee. We don't have to hide who we are. We don't have to try to keep eternity at arm's length because eternity has drawn near to us and not in condemnation, but in love. What are the ways, this could be the question that we end with this morning, what are the ways 
that I can seek to further his kingdom in the spheres he's got me in right now. There are always going to be reasons to fear or to be angry or to be uncertain in this life. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6 about our temporal needs, all of those? I think he said something like, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. What are the ways that I can bring the joy, the love, the life of the kingdom to those that God has put around me? The guilt of the wicked, like the guilt of this Samaritan woman, leads them to flee. But when we run to him, instead of running away from him, we are set free to run to those around us in service, in gospel service to them. Friends, let's use the reminder of this passage this morning to bring the joy, love, and life of God's kingdom to those. What if you think about those God's put in your sphere this way? It can almost feel embarrassing or arrogant if we think about it wrongly. Let me start that again. Let's bring the joy, love, and life of God's kingdom to those so fortunate as to have been put into your sphere, to have been put into the sphere of a child of God. Would you pray with me? We thank you this morning, triune God, for the assurances of your word. And we this morning gather together, we who approach your throne by the blood of the Son, we proclaim that no matter the circumstances of the present day, we are never going to be thirsty again. God, help us to live out of that truth, we pray. Grant us an eternal mindedness and an eternal mindedness of the sort that makes us of tremendous earthly good. Give us grace to be useful instruments in the Redeemer's hands. And we pray, Father, in the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.